because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they which bear witness of me. And so from January through August, we essentially looked at the first five books, the books of Moses, to see how in the writings of Moses, Christ is presented. And then we moved from there to consider God's revelation of his son, the Messiah, through David, David a prophet. And now I'll call your attention to the chart because the first chart, um, the one that uh, has on one side some Old Testament references and some New Testament references, the one that doesn't involve Psalm 22 and Psalm 2, so we're on that side of the page, which should be page 1, but I didn't number the pages. Uh, On that side, I want you to look quickly at some of the themes that we've actually covered in terms of what God revealed through David concerning the coming Messiah. We could call this the theology of Christ by David. David's theology of Christ. But essentially what David presents is the the mission of Christ. When the Messiah was going to come into the world a thousand years after David, what was the Messiah, what was the Christ's mission going to be? What was it going to look at, look like? What would be some of the identifying factors? And so we find these in a number of different psalms which David has written. So I'm going to begin down about the third row over where I want you to recognize that the Apostle Peter says decisively in his very first Christian sermon that there were things that David knew for certain. And the certainty that David knew was that the Christ was going to be resurrected from the dead and that the Christ was going to be raised to the right hand of the Father to exercise all of his sovereignty and that this was going to be the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David, that one would sit upon David's throne eternally, that there would come one who would be not just a son of David, but the eternal Son of God. Then we go further and we see that the prophetic teachings of David uh, begin to focus specifically on the Messiah. What is he going to do? And here we looked at Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, where in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, we have those verses expounded and opened up to us. That the mission of Christ was going to be this He was going to come in his own incarnate body to offer himself in perfect obedience, doing the will of God in such a way that it would fulfill and replace all of the Levitical sacrifices. That's what the writer says, Hebrews chapter 10, in the passage that we looked at then. Christ comes not just to fulfill the Levitical sacrifices, but he comes to be the final and ultimate sacrifice that any person needs in order to be made right with God. We continued on by looking at Psalm 110, verse 4, and the way that it is expounded and presented, again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. (coughs) There we see that Christ not just simply replaces the Levitical sacrifices, He fulfills and replaces the Levitical priesthood because Christ is of a different order of priesthood entirely. He's of the order of Melchizedek, 
Because through David, these words were expressed, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. And therefore, Christ is not just the necessary high priest, but he is the great and final high priest. He's the high priest who is exalted and seated at the Father's right hand. Uh, then we went on to consider Psalm 2. Because not only is it the mission of the, of the Christ to come into the world to be one who offers himself as a sacrifice, and the one who governs that sacrifice as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, how is he going to be received when he comes into the world? We looked at Psalm 2. We looked at the first three verses. <coughs> and in those verses, what we discovered is that Christ, when he comes, is going to be rejected by the Jewish leadership, by the Gentile leadership, and by all of the people. That's what's prophesied in Psalm chapter 2, the first three verses. Is the Messiah going to be gladly received by the people of Israel? No, he's going to be rejected. As John writes in John chapter 1, he came to his own, but his own received him not. But in that rejection, what is revealed through Scripture is that they have the greatest need of salvation and redemption because in rejecting Christ, they are rejecting God. Then we continued by looking at Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, the first half of that psalm, first 20 verses or so, continued to reflect that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to be rejected. But that rejection is going to take the form of crucifixion. And there in Psalm 22, in those first 20 verses, we looked at it very carefully to see that the very way in which Jesus was crucified, all of the particulars, in fact, we looked at five major particular themes of his crucifixion, were prophesied by David a thousand years earlier to show us that the scriptures were particularly fulfilled in such a manner that, humanly speaking, this could never have been contrived by human authors. It is not just something that could have happened by accident. It does demonstrate, in a powerful way, the supernatural nature of the Word of God. And that is to give us confidence that the scriptures that lead us to Christ are of God and supernatural in nature, and therefore the scriptures can do whatsoever they claim they're going to do for those who are lost sinners, especially through Christ. We continued on looking at Psalm 22, the first 20 verses, to show that Christ's crucifixion reveals the depravity of human nature. People think of all the great evils that have ever transpired in the world. The greatest of all evil that has ever been done has been the killing of God. No one except Jesus was ever innocent. No one was ever under the, not under the, everyone was under the law, the wages of sin is death. Every one of us deserves to die by judicial punishment from God. It's the visitation of God's wrath upon us that we die. Read Psalm 90. 
But Christ was the only man ever exempt from that law by virtue of his sinlessness. There was no greater injustice done by human beings in all of human history than putting Christ on the cross. The greatest revelation of evil is when human beings kill the one who is the perfection of all human goodness. I have to stop there. I'm re-preaching that sermon to you. But it's an important point. It's an important concept. The crucifixion of Jesus is not just simply our salvation. It's the revelation of why we need to be saved. He had to be forsaken so that we would not be forsaken, that in his forsakenness we would be accepted because the penalty is paid by what he's done for us. And Psalm 20 also reveals that all of it was sovereignly planned by God. God planned that human beings would kill his son in order that those who kill God might also be saved. Now, we come into the second half of this psalm. And what we have here is the post-resurrection account. Uh, the first is the crucifixion. And then we have the post-resurrection account of what takes place after Jesus rises from the dead and he's ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. What then does he do in the expanse of human history when Christ, reigning as king, continues to do his priestly ministry over the history of the world by virtue of what he did on the cross, death, burial, resurrection. What does Jesus continue to do? And so we see this in verses uh, 21 through 31. And the first thing we did was we looked at verses 21 to 26. And today we're going to look at verse 27 and then verse 28. Now what I want us to appreciate that is in this last part of Psalm 21, three great themes emerge. Three great things which Christ does there is the restoration of the worship of God. And that's what we saw in verses 21 through 26. The restoration of the worship of God in which Jesus Christ himself is the worship leader. Jesus Christ is himself the one who leads in all of Christian worship. That's a powerful idea. That when we come together like this, Christ is present and Christ is enabling and guiding and directing that which worships the Father through him. But we also see in verse 27 and then in verse 28, these two themes. That Christ brings about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise of God. What God promised to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, Christ brings that to fulfillment. From the time of his resurrection till the end, Christ brings about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And then in verse 28, simultaneously, Christ brings about the establishment of the messianic kingdom, the messianic kingdom of God. So we're going to look at verse 27, verse 28, and we're going to go back in a moment to Psalm 22, Psalm 2, and consider that as well. And this is where the chart is going to be helpful. Now, verse 27 then. Here's what we read. 
All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Now that's a prediction that Christ is going to fulfill the Abrahamic promise, the promise that God made to Abraham. So let's review what that promise is so that we have a proper context for verse 27. Uh, And so if you look at the chart, you'll see. Uh, Those promises are made in Genesis 12, verse 3. And then Genesis 22:18, Genesis 12:3, God declares to Abraham, "I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." That's the beginning of God's call to Abraham. He makes that promise, which then takes on the form of the covenant in the succeeding years that take place after that. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We go to Genesis 22:18. This is upon the occasion of the sacrifice of Isaac, when God supplies the ram in the place of Isaac, a representative and substitute sacrifice in the place of Isaac, the promised child. And this is what the angel from heaven says to Abraham. Genesis 22:18, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, the full understanding of this comes in the New Testament. It comes from the Apostle Paul. It comes in the book of Galatians. And what Paul is going to say here is specifically what Jesus taught him. Paul didn't make this up. All the New Testament writers got their understanding of Christ from Christ. That's pretty clear in terms of what Jesus promises the apostles. He's going to instruct them and bring to mind everything they need to know about him. So we can say what Paul says here. He got from Jesus himself. So we read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying... In you shall all the nations be blessed. That was the gospel, Paul says. Genesis 12, 3 is the gospel. It's the good news. But the gospel has to concern Christ. Christ has to be the centerpiece of the gospel. So Paul goes on down in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And the the word there is seed. It does not say, quote, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul is telling us that the consummate point of the promise that God made to Abraham, that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that that reference to seed is Christ that Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. In Christ, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. So, we come now to verse 27, with that as the proper background. The background is Christ himself being the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So, verse 27 makes reference to this. All of the ends of the earth and all of the families of the nations. Now that's Hebrew poetry, it's parallelism, both phrases mean essentially the same thing. But the Holy Spirit is stating that through David, 
stating through David that the Messiah and his ministry after the resurrection is going to bring about such a change in the world that all the ends of the earth and all the families of the nations are going to worship God. That this is what's going to happen. That the ministry of Christ following his resurrection is going to be such that it encounters and embraces and includes people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, how do we know that that's what Jesus meant? Because Jesus says so in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9, where we read, And he did purchase with his blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he's made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God forever and ever. So the scope of what's going on here, the important point to appreciate, is that Christ is directing what's happening on earth even now from the Father's right hand to see this great missionary endeavor that all of the nations of the world would be impacted and influenced and even to some extent changed so that there would be disciples made out of all the nations of the earth that they might be those who glorify the Father through Christ. That's why if you know your Bible and you know this and you understand this, you recognize that Jesus in Matthew 28, when he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, it's that resurrected, ascended, kingly authority. When he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And then he says, and teaching them everything that I have commanded you. What he's doing there is reflecting that is the authority by which he gives that great commission is the Abrahamic covenant. And Christ being destined by the Father to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Christ called to be the one who orchestrates all the missions of the world, all the evangelism of the world, to build up his church so his church is reflected in every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, how does this happen? We go on and read in verse 27, the divine method. How does this happen? How does this take place? There are three verbs, three verbs that we read in this verse. Remember, turn, and worship. Now, I want to say that these three verbs describe the essence and nature of true conversion. Whether you're converted out of paganism or you grow up within a Christian family within the church and you finally come to the point of making your personal profession of faith in Christ, these three things invariably will take place in you and in your heart and in your life. First, you will remember. Now, the pagan, what does the pagan remember? The pagan comes to remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that he has suppressed the true knowledge of the true God because that which be, may be known about God is evident in all of creation, and God has made it evident to him, and God has even made it evident within him, and he has suppressed it. But in conversion, the pagan comes to the point of realizing that which I have rejected, I actually know. There is a God, and I'm accountable to him, and I'm responsible to him, and he has created me, and it is my duty 
to turn and repentance to him. But also the child growing up in a Christian home, when it comes to that point of faith, he remembers then actually who he is. You are one who's been in a Christian home. God has put you there. God put you there so that you would know and remember what he has loved you for such that he puts you in a Christian home. And so a child born into a Christian home grows up and begins to understand, yes, God has loved me. God has cared for me. And up to this point, I've lived as though he doesn't really matter. And I need to turn from myself and turn to him. I need to remember him. And of course, the second verb is turn. Because when we remember who God is and we remember who we are, we must turn. I've been a rebel. I've got to turn back to God. The God who's loved me, the God who's cared for me, the God who died for me in his son Jesus. And that turning then is a rejection of the patterns of the world and embracing the patterns of the gospel. It's turning away from self and self-aggrandizement and self-glorification and too many selfies and turning to Christ, making Christ first, making Christ foremost, making Christ everything. And the outcome of that is what? It's worship. If Christ is first and foremost in everything, well, you praise that which is first and foremost in everything. It is a natural response. And it's actually turning into what God truly designed you to be. Someone who sees Jesus and values Jesus and loves Jesus above everything else. Thinking of Jesus, there could be no greater. Thinking of Jesus and wanting to serve him. Thinking of Jesus and wanting to be with him. Because he is ultimately our all in all. I want you to think about this. I thought about this week, Thanksgiving, And when I find that Jesus isn't that attractive to me, I mean, how do I know Jesus isn't attractive to me? It's when I'm distracted and attracted to anything and everything else. When I'd rather watch a Netflix episode of something rather than, oh, I haven't read my Bible or prayed today. Oh, maybe I'll give God a couple of minutes before I go to sleep tonight. Don't want to miss this episode. When I find myself distracted and attracted to the patterns of this world, uh, I, I ought to recognize that there's a distance growing between me and Christ. One of the surest ways of finding Jesus attractive once again is to simply stop and in your heart talk to God think about everything that you have reason to be thankful for. The small things to the big things. And the more you concretely say to God, I am thankful for this. I'm thankful that I've had three meals today. I'm thankful that I'm not condemned because I like fast food or chocolate chip cookies or donuts. I'm thankful for coffee. I'm thankful The fact that the cashier at the store was friendly and smiled at me. 
I'm thankful for hearing from someone I haven't heard from in a long time. I'm, I'm thankful that I have a car to drive. I'm thankful that I have gas to put in my car. I could be more thankful, Lord, if it wasn't $4 and a quarter a gallon, but I'm yet <laughs> thankful. I'm thankful for all of these things which I actually have in my life. And when we begin to look at all the things around us and all the circumstances and all the people and we begin to concretely thank God for them, then you will find Jesus more attractive because he has given these things to you and for you and for your good. And of course, this is the week out of all the weeks of the year that we say, let us be thankful for all the things that God has done for us. You will know that this was a good week if next week you say, Jesus, I feel so much closer to you. You are so much more attractive to me because I have just experienced the blessing of being thankful for all the things you've done for me. Now, verse 28. Now, verse 28, I want you to circle it on the chart uh, because I intended to separate verse 28 from verses 29 to 31, which we're not going to have time to look at. Verse 28 uh, is a summary of the kingdom work of Christ. It's not the full statement. It's not even that much of a statement. In fact, in all of the Old Testament, we never get a full statement of the kingdom work of Christ prophetically. We get lots of places, lots and bits and pieces of it. Perhaps the best exposition of the kingdom work of Christ goes back to Psalm 2, beginning at verse 4, verse 4 through 12. Let me read that to you, and then we'll move quickly through it to see what that has to tell us. Psalm 2, verses 4 through 12. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations, your heritage, and the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, let me describe some things that are going on here in all of Psalm 2. There are three points of view. You have the voice of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's point of view. You have the voice of God the Father and God the Father's point of view. And you have the voice of Christ and Christ's point of view. This is a Trinitarian psalm. It begins, the first three verses, the point of view of the Holy Spirit. We've already looked at that a few weeks back. That's about the conspiracy about Jesus that leads to crucifixion. So now in verse 4, you have the point of view of the Father, God the Father, in response to what they did to his Son. And what his response is to what they did to his Son is in the high and lofty place and person who God is, he looks down upon what human beings think they can do to his Son in their rebellious nature, and he laughs at them. He mocks them. He scorns them. 
His reaction is a divine sarcasm against them because of the futility of what they have done. They think they're throwing off the, the fetters of God. They think they're throwing off God's kingship and ruler, rulership over them. And they have actually done God's purpose in what they have done in killing the Son. Because in killing the Son, Jesus died in the place of sinners. So we find in verse 4, 5, and 6, the reaction of God in which he says in response to them, you think you've killed him. No, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. You've killed him. I've raised him from the dead. I've exalted him. He is sitting at my right hand. He is now established and installed as king. Spurgeon says, the anointed has become God's appointed. And God has raised up his son and established him. And this becomes then the beginning of the great kingship of Christ. Christ at the Father's right hand, ruling as king over everything. So then you go to the point of view of Christ. What does Christ say? Christ says, I'm going to tell you what the Lord has decreed. He has said, you are my son. This day have I begotten you. Ask of me what you will, and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession or heritage. Christ knows exactly what the exaltation to the Father's right hand means. He's going to receive the inheritance of the entire world. But as Spurgeon also points out, those who are his enemies become his inheritance. Now that's profound. That is profound. Now the best understanding of the, the phrase where, where Jesus says, you are my son, this day I have begotten thee, which is a mysterious kind of statement here with respect to the eternal sonship of Christ and the human sonship of Christ but really, it's the Apostle Paul in the beginning of the book of Romans who gives us the best understanding of what Christ is saying there. So if you were to turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we see there Paul saying, God has promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, descended from David according to the flesh, that he is going to be declared to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of Holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. The day that Jesus is resurrected by the Father, that's the day that God has declared that Christ is his Son. It's a declaration of his sonship as he's exalted to the Father's right hand. And then we continue verses 8 and 9 where it's re Christ repeats what the Father has said to the Son the entire world, all of your enemies, all of these nations are going to be your inheritance. The whole fallen world that has lived in opposition to God and to Christ, Christ has inherited as his domain, as his kingdom. And we read what Christ will do. The rebellious and those who are rebels within his kingdom, Christ will wield the rod of of iron and he will shatter them 
as though they are pottery to pieces. In other words, those who won't yield to Christ create their own doom. They will experience the wrath of the Lamb. And then we have in the last three verses the point of view of the Holy Spirit once again. Having seen what Christ will do with his kingdom, the Spirit of God gives this invitation and warning. We read in verse 10 where he says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. The Holy Spirit then presents the invitation. Yield. Be reconciled to God. Embrace the Son Kiss the Son. That is, give the Son your deepest affection. Or, suffer the consequences of the divine wrath of Christ and suffer eternal doom. Now, how do we put these two pictures together? This is my last quick point. How do you put together these two pictures? The one of of the kingdom of grace Christ fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, bringing salvation to all the world. And this other, this kingdom of the glory of Christ, where his enemies are as his inheritance, and he's going to rule them with a rod of iron and shatter the rebellious to pieces. How do we reconcile these two? Well, in the Old Testament, you couldn't, because the Old Testament never saw that Christ was going to come in two distinct times and two distinct manifestations. When Christ first comes and he inaugurates the new covenant, he comes in all of his glory as the humble Savior who conquers the world by grace and fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. But when Christ returns a second time, he will conquer the world not by grace, but by the glory of his wrath and judgment. Ultimately, ultimately, what we see here, there are only two destinies. Either yield and bend the knee to Christ or rebel and find yourself broken. Eternally. The Apostle Paul says that the climax of all of this, when Jesus is raised to the Father's right hand, when he is given the name that is above every other name, it is this that every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. None excluded in heaven and earth and hell. None excluded. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those by grace, willingly. Those under judgment, unwillingly. But every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. And the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, has said, Kiss the Son, lest his anger flare up in a moment. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Our Father, keep working in us a love for Jesus, glorious Jesus, glorious Savior, to those whom you work grace in their hearts and lives to turn to you. And glorious Judge, who will not allow any ultimately to refuse to bend the knee. We thank you, Father, for the greatness of your Son. And now, Lord, make us willing participants in the work of Christ in this world, uh, bearing witness as salt and light, bearing witness by the word to who Jesus is and to the kingdom of his grace and the kindness of his offer and the, and the wonder of what it means to kiss the Son and to find refuge in him. Lord, may we be those who actively, prayerfully do so. And Father, for those that we love so deeply who don't know Jesus, we pray, rescue them from the wrath to come. In Jesus' name, amen.